Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 516. That's it's a hostful many. intro. What? Can you believe it? Jonah's not talking. Jonah's uh, just woken up. Hey, oh, hey, guys. Shit. What? Jonah, did we wake you up? Wait, you... Why, why are you recording in my house? Well, we thought we'd come by and see the new foster kid. We just thought it'd be fun to do an intro from your bed. No. This, yeah, isn't, yeah, yeah. this is like kind of like some crazy boundary shit that no, like no, this no, isn't no, cool. No, 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 Deanna no. said it was cool. Yeah. That's She's bull- actually sleeping in the other room. Why is she, wait, why isn't my wife sleeping in the same room with me? <laughs> what happened last night? Well, oh, some things we need to talk about. Well, before oh. we talk about them, let's talk about Nerdist episode 516. Okay. First of all, Jonah, what are you up to? Uh, well, you know, this uh, this weekend I'll be at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in cool. Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's a great festival with a lot of awesome acts of people you'll know. And uh, Friday night we're doing a Meltdown show. And then uh, Saturday afternoon I'm doing a live Jonah radio with guests Lance Bangs, Hutch from the band The Thermals, and musical performance by Michael Cronin on Merge Records. It should be a lot of fun. That so sounds May 9th great. And 10th or the Bridgetown Festival. Yeah, yeah, I'll be out there doing that Meltdown shows. show. Could I see that guy from Silicon Valley in that? Yeah, show? yeah, yeah. You can see the guy from Portlandia. And oh uh, man, yeah. Red okay. Now stop doing that there? voice. <laughs> sure thing, Chris. Oh, yeah. He doesn't Bruce even have it. No, I'm just trying to. Oh, this hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody lost his voice. Yeah, yeah, I did. Because he's because he's fostering a cat. Because I'm fostering a cat. And that it turns it's out a long you're very allergic story to. that you're you not won't allergic hear. to your cat. You're allergic to this other cat because yeah, this cat's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of the Nerds Podcast brought to you by Stamps.com. Oh my God, everybody! Guess what the promo code is, Nerdist. Yeah. Oh, finally! Yeah, yeah. I have been waiting for the day that you actually gave the right promo yeah, code. Yeah, you know, and you just, just toss it off. I'm just tired show. of uh, that joke. Marin's going to be on the show tonight, actually. Uh, what show? On at midnight. I don't know that. What is that? Well, that's a show that you write on. I don't believe. Does uh... it sound familiar? Points. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah. He's uh, he's nicer than you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that weren't true. Stamps.com, print out postage from any place where you have your computer. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, right from your computer and printer. And Ugh. then you just hand it to the mail carrier. Just done. And that's it. Done and done. You get, the special, you get special postage discounts that you can't even get at the post office, first class priority mail, international, and more. Don't ever go to the post office again. I don't plan on it. If you spend too much time in the post office, you'll sound like Jonah. Yeah. That's me. Take it from me. Nerdist Jonah Ray. Don't go to the post office. Stay away from them. That voice matches that read. It was perfect. Right now, there's uh, the promo code Nerdist will give you the no risk trial, $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and some $55 of free postage. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Nerdist. That's stamps.com. Promo code Nerdist. Have a stamps.com horrific day. Oh, I like that local commercial. That voice makes me want to shower. <laughs> This episode of the podcast is uh, Thomas Tull, which... Uh, is everybody's I, boss. I was fascinated. But now, yes, and now some people are like, oh, sure, you have your boss on. You're probably going to totally kiss his ass. Well, I have my well, boss on every yes, episode. Yes, probably, but I'm, I'm nice to everybody. But Thomas is a, is a fascinating guy and a really, really sweet guy. And especially for a guy in his position, if you ran a studio the size of Legendary, you could totally be that old school like Hollywood studio jerk. Uh, and he's not at all. So I wanted to have him on the podcast to because Godzilla's coming out on the yeah. 16th of May. Looks really good. It looks fucking great. I, yeah. And I got to be honest, I when I when I 
when he first told me a long time ago that they were going to do Godzilla, I was like, oh, that sounds like it'll probably, I mean, I hope that works out, but it, the, the just the little snippet, and I haven't seen the movie yet, but the snippets that I've seen and the special effect, and Chloe's dad doing this, did the special oh, effects cool. for it, and it looks fantastic. <laughs> So sounds I'm like you got a excited. horse in this race, maybe mm-hmm. more than one. I do. I, I. It's true that I do have horses in this race. I'm not <laughs> going to deny that, but I am also very excited about the movie. So if you're not familiar with Legendary, Legendary is a studio that is responsible for the Dark Knight series and the Hangover series and Inception, um, and uh, uh, it's, uh, Superman, 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 the Superman. There's not a lot of food in that. It I sounds like a, that sounds like a quartet, like a barbershop quartet of guys who just sing about food. Superman, Superman, yeah. Superman. Pot roast in the morning, pot roast at the night. That's not supper. Um, Nurse.com is relaunching today. New website. Uh, n- new attitude. This ain't your daddy. It's probably also your daddy's. Is the website going to have to go back to its home planet? (laughs) (laughs) It's not Poochie, I promise. (laughs) Uh, No, we simplified our website. It had been basically on a blog platform forever. We were on initially TypePad and then WordPress, and then we... And now we are on a a, a, a CMS that's that's actually super robust and uh, for the... Because we grew, so now we actually have a mobile site and Nerdist.com, and so it's all it's all good. And uh, and so thanks to thanks to Legendary for uh, the giving us the uh, the ability to to grow bigger. Don't be like me, a user of the old Nerdist.com. Well, you can't now. Everyone's using the new Nerdist. How are you still using the old one? I got an old MacBook. <laughs> I'll, I, I believe it. Yeah. So, the, so the generation of the MacBook determines the the internet that you get. It's uh, it doesn't search for things past two thousand and ten. Okay. Yeah, it's just the same thing. All right, we'll just perfect that, and then we'll yes and it next time. We'll get that next time. Was, no, was, we got there. It was fine. We got there. You just kind of shit on it right now. Yeah, just it was because I stammered a bit. You got. Yeah. I don't know why you, you did that to me the last time we did improv. Yeah, you know well, what? Are we doing improv right now? <laughs> Where's Thomas? Tell when you need him. I would tell him to fire both of you because oh. you are talking very cross with me right now, <laughs> and I am not appreciating it. It's Nerds Podcast number five sixteen with Thomas Tall. Now entering Nerdist.com. Uh, all right, are we going now, Katie? Start rolling. Are we talking about Beastmaster? <laughs> oh my God, Mark Singer. You want to talk about Beastmaster? I, these are my thieves. <laughs> I, I kind of want to. Do I need? To... You can have headphones on or not. It's I, I like them because I can. Then you can hear everything really clearly. Oh, I can. You can hear me right I can here. Hear you right. right now. All right. Well, if you're not going to do no, headphones, no, no, I might. No, no, I don't want. I'm not no. going to. Screw these, Katie. Get these oh, headphones man. out of my sight. <laughs> Beastmaster, Mark Singer. Mark Singer is one of those guys that when you looked at his face, you did you wouldn't go. Oh, he's ripped underneath. Like he just looked like sort of a nerdy dude. And then Beastmaster he was ripped. He was ripped. And he hung out with Tanya Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> was so was Beastmaster when you said someday I'm gonna make movies like Beastmaster. You know, I, I one could never set the bar there. <laughs> but I thought it was cool. When I was a kid, I loved it. I actually haven't seen Beastmaster in a long I mean, there are some I know that what you you're watch, doing tonight. I'm gonna watch Beastmaster tonight, but there's some that I always remember as like, oh crawl was awesome, but I think if I watch Crawl again, I'd be like, oh, oh. <clears throat> no, some of this stuff is left better 
but yeah, you know, just leave it in its context. Yeah, wherever you were at that that moment. But I want to pitch you an idea, and then you can hit me in the face if you think this is crazy. All right, Christopher Nolan's Beastmaster. I just want you to sit with it for a minute and just see how it feels. You know, Chris is probably the one director that maybe could get Daniel Day Lewis to play to play Beastmaster. Yeah. Uh, so a couple things since we're starting the podcast. I've had a lot of people on the podcast. I've had my dad. My dad was on the podcast. I've had other, but I've never actually had a boss on the pod. Like you, it's sort of a, it's an interesting. We are going to have a conversation after this that if you have now reached the level of booking people that I'm sitting here, mm-hmm. I'm very nervous about the future. <laughs> <laughs> But we'll talk about that. Okay, yeah, that's fine. You're sort of like the Blade, the character of Blade, where it's like you have a couple of different mashups of strengths because you do, you sort of, you kind of have this jock's body, but this nerd brain. How do you balance those two sides? I mean, I just like things that I'm interested in. And, um, you know, you have to... In order to do what we want to do, which is to make the movies and TV shows and everything, that, you know, you kind of have to make sure that you can keep the lights on, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes when you talk to people and um, they want to talk about the process, like how, how do you, how does Hollywood turn this stuff out? And it's like, well, you can make things that are avant-garde, but if they're too avant-garde, you'll make like three of them and then you'll be out of business. So you have to balance making sure that, uh, you know, commerce works and all that. Um, and then at the same time, anything that the legendary logos on, uh, we certainly don't bat a thousand, but it's important to me that at least we start out saying how, if this can't be great, then let's, let's not, let's not do that. You, you play, you play the ball as it lies. So whatever, um, however my, my brain is wired, I don't know. But you, we, we've talked before about how you, you played football in high school, but then you also didn't really, you also uh, were more associated with kind of the, the nerdy brainiac types too, that you were kind you had your leg and you had a leg in each of these worlds. Yeah. I mean, sports and, and movies and geeky stuff has like been my whole, my whole world. So whether it was playing ball in high school or college or whatever, I always had these two groups, right? Like I'd leave the gym working out with uh, with the guys in the team and then, you know, run off to play uh, <laughs> whatever we were up to or into or watching. And I just – I'm intellectually curious about a lot of things, you know. And um, so it just – it uh, it leads to some fascinating conversations and friendships, that's for sure. <laughs> so how did – what did you identify with in high school? What, what did you – someone said, oh, what do you – what do you, what are you? Would you just go, I don't know. I just like what I like. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I certainly the athletic side, football and baseball was like, was a, was a big deal to me. But at the same time, I mean, especially on the movie side, that's all we did. You know, we'd watch. And I remember when we got a video King in a little town that I grew up in and it was the great, cause then instead of just saying like, if the movie comes on TV, you could watch it. All of a sudden, it was a new paradigm because you could go and rent movies. And that's all we did. Yeah. Yeah. So, I know it's a big deal. And it, well, it was a big deal. And I know that you didn't, uh, your family didn't really have money growing up. Like, you, were, <laughs> you, grew, you grew up in a, in a 
Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, uh, single mom and all that fun stuff. So yeah, it was a, it was a struggle. There was not much disposable income as the economists say. Um, so, you know, you had to choose wisely and, uh, and it was, you know, we'd go over, I, I had some rich friends that had HBO. What? Yeah. Home crazy. box office. It was crazy. It was crazy. And that was a big deal too, is free HBO weekend. Mm-hmm. You Just could, to get the subscribers I, in. I mean, it was, uh, I remember distinctly one time I was probably like nine, 10 years old. I hope to God I didn't tell you the story the last time, but if I did, you know, and there was a, there was a movie on called Humanoids from the Deep. That, I think I know that movie. Yeah, yeah, there you have it. So my mom was like, do not, you don't watch HBO after, you know, don't do it. But I snuck out, it was, it was two in the morning and I put on free HBO and I watched the, in the, you know, the, the girl was pregnant with one of the creatures and it burst through her stomach. I went into the fetal position. I was like, no more free HBO. That's it. <laughs> my free, my, my HBO experience like that was phantasm, uh, in the late, in the late seventies. And, um, being absolutely terrified of the, 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 basically the fly, well, the flying ball, the, yeah. and the tall man, and then that crazy mausoleum yeah. and, and everything about it. Totally. There was something about that movie that I could not shake for years and years and years. I mean, when you're young and you don't have a lot of experience yet, something just imprints on your brain and it just like makes a stamp. <clears throat> and to this day, I still have weird dreams that involve just that, just that first that first cinematic horror experience. Look, you know, as somebody with kids, I, I don't – if you're not old enough to put it in context and sort of say like, all right, that's a – you know, somebody's – it's entertainment and it's uh, – you know, not only is it not real but understanding the context in which they're – whatever this might end up being. But if you watch that stuff too young, I do think it's it's bad. And at least back then – it's not like I had access to that stuff all day long oh. where it's like I didn't have a device in my pocket where I could yeah. just pull up Phantasm and right be like, now. Jesus, what happened? Yeah, right now. You want to watch it again? You just <laughs> pull it up. Instantaneous everything. Yeah. So what do you feel like there's a balance? How, you know, how are you balanced? I mean, your kids are still pretty young. They are. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, whatever sort of advancements happen in the next few years when they start coming of, you know, consumer age. But they're probably are. Do they do they tool around on the tablets already? Uh, they they yes, but under strict supervision, restricted. <laughs> because I, you know, look, I think kids in this day and age grow up fast enough. The instant access to everything, and whether it's social skills. I mean, if you think about the pressures of what kids are up against, in junior high and high school now with social media, right? If you had if you had an issue with somebody in high school at least was like, well, sixth period is going to suck today because I'm going to run into Butch or whatever. Yeah. Now it's 24 seven. Now at Butch is threatening you. (laughs) Yeah. All all (laughs) over the place. But you know, you think about those things and just things that, um, corners that you can get into. So as far as I'm concerned, um, if my kids, when they're get older, make fun of me and and say like, he was old fashioned, he wouldn't let it. I'm okay with that. Yeah. There's plenty of time to delve into 
you know, w- whatever mischief. I don't need them going to Nerdist.com yet. <laughs> you got to watch that. Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Yeah. Eight, 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 11 and up, I'd say, is a good uh, – yeah. we're, like, we're like a good PG. I think we're a good PG site. Some of the sock puppet stuff is disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a personal thing, though. Do you have a personal thing against sock clowns puppets? Clowns and sock puppets. Clowns and sock puppets, yeah. yeah. Now, is it the standard American clown or like weird French clowns? I'd say all of it. I mean, you know, not that I want to, not that I, I, you know, want to say anything that incites like a clown. If there's a union, like a clown, you don't want a clown, right? Performers. No, I don't, I don't need that. But I do have to say that at some point, if you find yourself, you know, deciding this is the route you're going to take and you're going to put on that outfit and the makeup and the whole thing and just decide this is what I'm up to. You know, I still, I don't, I have not run into people that tell me that they love clowns. I've not, I'm sure they're out there. I have not run into them. I think there's some, uh, I think there's some clown sympathizers out there. Look, there's gotta be fans. Otherwise they wouldn't keep showing up. Here's what I, I, this is the type of clown that I like is the no makeup clown. It's just someone who can create a scene with the, you know, with, you know, not, not not a mime, but someone who can create some type of comedy, some type of physical comedy without the makeup. The makeup freaks me oh, out. For a minute, just with the clown with no makeup, I I thought you were no 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 no. I wasn't no no. Like I you were going there. I'm like all right. No no, no, no. <laughs> but that's a good no. <laughs> that's actually a good line, Chris. It's the, the guy's a clown with no. He's makeup. a clown with no makeup. That is a, that is a Hardwick. You yeah. see, you see yeah. why I like to stand. He's not a time. he's not a powder face. Which is a disparaging term for clown. But I just <laughs> is that up. right? I just made that up. You're. I'll tell you what. You may have to. Have you ever done a stand up routine? You I'm thinking about it. Get you out. There. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. It seems like I'm gonna. I'm gonna build the whole thing around the powder face joke. But then again, you know, then these a, a lot of clown support sites are gonna launch. Yeah, I, I'm not. Me look, and I don't want to be a part. I am not looking to. It's it's as as artists. Yeah. Right. In that chosen profession of. How they how they decide to make people laugh, be storytellers, yep. you know, classic Joseph Campbell stuff, whatever it might be, <laughs> I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I but then cut to next week when I uh, when I start delving into it and discover that I actually love putting on clown makeup, and I'm like, no, you guys, I totally didn't understand. You don't understand. I yeah. think maybe I should start hosting at midnight just in full clown regalia. I, you know what, Chris? You're an artist, and if that's where you need to go, then we're fully supportive. I feel complimented that you think of me as an artist. <laughs> no, we that's our that's our whole mantra at Legendary. We want to support artists, so that you know, if that's where you need to go, that's the dark corner you need to go into. Where <laughs> they'd be like, if that's what you want to do, fine. Don't come near me. <laughs> I don't want to see you, but I yeah. support your perhaps, right. Perhaps a clown outfit. Double fisting sock puppets. Maybe that would be. Oh, man. Yeah, we'd be a trio. There you go. That's a great idea. Yeah. All right. I'm going to do it. All right. Powder face. Let's talk a little bit about um, how many listeners you're losing right now. <laughs> or how many clowns we're gaining. <laughs> and they're all listening in one car. <laughs> <laughs> See, there again. Oh, you're funny. Guy. We have 100,000 clowns and they're all, they're all in one hunt. They're in one, they're in one element. Um, let's talk about it, but I, cause I really, this, the thing with Nerdist, it blew up very fast and I realized pretty quickly, well, I'm going to have to make a sacrifice somewhere. I'm going to either have to relinquish a little bit of control and learn how to delegate, or I'm going to have to give up 
the creative stuff that I want to do. And I, I feel like I constantly want to learn to be a better leader or a better, you know, someone who can run things effectively and effectively manage people in a way that they feel like they're being support, their ideas are being supported and they're not being stifled. And so, but as you scale up, which is a term I never used before three years ago, um, how do you, how do you do that? And how do you create that environment? And how do you, you know, especially how many people does legendary have now? Um, across like between here and international, I want to say probably just shy of 300. Okay. So, um, how do you manage those 300 uh in a non-Xerxes fashion. I was just making a reference. <laughs> Thank you for that plug. Sure, of course. Um I look, I, I think a couple of things. Um I would say one authenticity, right? It it's it's uh one of the pillars that we built the company on because people can tell, right? Whether it's whether it's movie-going audiences or whether it's your employees and people that work with you, if you say one thing or espouse one thing and you're doing another thing that that gets sniffed out very quickly. The second thing is clarity, clarity of vision and being open with people about, Hey, look, this is the reason that we're taking these steps just so you understand where we're going. And that that's something that we do uh, fairly often. Um, and I think also from a leadership standpoint, constantly asking what you can do better. Right. And be willing that you're willing to sit with people and, you know, having candid conversations. That's one of the things that we constantly talk about, as you, as you know, is that, uh, you know, being candid is part of our culture. So if the baby's ugly, you know, <laughs> it, it is, you know, you shouldn't waste calories thinking about like, okay, if I don't like this project, but then what does that mean? And then I have to maneuver. I just, I hate that stuff. So, you know, to me, it's having a place where people are proud to go to work. They understand exactly where you're going. They may agree or disagree, but they don't feel like they're in the dark. Cause mm -hmm. I find that's the worst when people are like, I don't understand why we're doing X, Y, and Z. I disagree with it, but, and, and I have no idea why we would do that. To me, that's the worst of all circumstances. So those are some of the things that. Well, I guess, and if you're if you're not an effective leader, then you may not have those answers to give to people. So they're there, then they're in the dark, and then they and <clears throat> no one knows what's going on. So is it a question of like how do you stay focused with your with whatever your goal is or your vision? Because that's going to change over time, right? I mean, you can't you can't be so rigid to be like this is what it's always no. going to be. So how do you how do you stay consistent but flexible at the same time? Well, I, I think there's a difference between values, right? Bedrock values to say, this is what this company is. And, you know, to me, we have a little honor doesn't know circumstance, right? Regardless of what the circumstances are, here are the pillars on which you've built this, this company, organization, whatever it is. The business model or what you're making or, you know, regardless of what business you're in, those things certainly have to evolve. And they have to be uh, f fluid. But I think those value systems have to remain in place. Otherwise, if you're fluid about those things, I think that that's where you find yourself in trouble. And I also think it's okay to tell people you don't know the answer. You know, that, that's the thing, at least in our business, 
the way people um, view content, interact with it, want to consume it, want to go deeper, that has changed. You know, Legendary is 10 years old. And even in those 10 years, this business has changed enormously. So to be able to say, you know, to the folks that work with you, look, we're trying to figure this out. We don't know exactly what it is. So that you just feel like, you know, people want to feel, everybody wants to feel like you're dealing with them straight. So, yeah. And I mean, is it, um, when you get to certain places and you, at what point do you know, at what point do you say, oh, I think we can really sort this particular crisis out or, you know what, we got to backpedal and then go around and start a whole new direction. Like, how do you know, how do you know when it's banging your head against the wall or, you know, or when it's time to give up and learn and move on? Well, I, I think there are many lessons you can learn, you know, from, from all different walks of, of business, so to speak. And one of the things that's interesting, even in the Silicon Valley uh, crowd where, where I have a fair number of friends and have done some investing is fail fast, right? If something's not going to work, and to me, what fail fast means isn't just have a plan, implement it, and then understand how quickly have measurables so you know whether or not it works. To me, it also means having, having the courage to say, well, that didn't work and not have pride of ownership and to be able to say, we need to try something different because you can find yourself bogged down and being stubborn in the fact that we've invested time and money and cycles in this. And I really thought it was a good idea. Well, if it doesn't work, you can keep beating your head against the wall or you can say, all right, that didn't work. Let's, let's go to something else. Yeah. What do you think is the most valuable thing that you've learned in the last 10 years? What, what, what is, what did legendary teach you? Oh, man. I mean, look, the biggest privilege of this whole journey, uh, is that I get to do something that I love, mm -hmm. right? Like just, it's, it's inconceivable to me that, uh, you know, that I've gotten to do this, the talent and the people that you get to work with, not only the Chris Nolans, the Guillermo del Toros, but, um, you know, people in business. And then one of the things that's, it's, it's humbling because the movie business, television, you know, the things that we do are not curing diseases. Okay. It's, it's amazing and it's fun and it affects people. And I take it seriously, but it's not, to me, it's not what policemen, firemen, teachers, doctors, it's not the same thing. It's my own personal opinion. Um, but I will say that when you go anywhere globally, and you talk about the movies, it's like, it is a, it is incredible the reach that it has. Um, so I think, you know, some of the, the lessons that I've kind of take, taken away, um, you know, the number one thing is, is to do make stuff that you want to personally see. Cause when I first, you know, got here, I wasn't from, from the business. And I thought, well, there, there has to be some secret handshake in the back room where all the studios know exactly <laughs> and, you know, what you come to find out is that there's, there's no such thing. And so if you make something that you love and if it doesn't work out, at least, you know, you can say, well, you know, we didn't try to jam something together because a bunch of focus groups says this is what we should, uh, you know, what we should make. And then I just think, you know, in terms of our employees and our culture and everything is just, you know, some of the things that we just mentioned, which is, 
uh, to be honest and forthright with people about where you're going and what you're trying to do and what the real problems are. Because guess what? There are every single day. You know, there are times I'm shocked any movie gets made just because it's such a complex ecosystem. Well, especially in the $200 million level where there's so much at stake with a lot of different people weighing in. How do you how do you steer that ship when it's not, you know, when you have to satisfy a lot of different, uh, a lot of different separate goals? Well, you have to, I mean, it's, it's every movie to me is like a startup company and you know, you have to get your, your field general and decide who's going to bring that home. And so I think the director to us is extraordinarily important. I don't care what cast you have, you know, whatever other elements you bring together, if that particular individual doesn't have the vision and the chops to pull it off, it'll never happen. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with the script and the story itself, because we live in a day and age where um, movie magic and the things that are done, even in lower budgeted films, is pretty mind blowing, right? I mean, we live in an age that and you don't want to create something where audiences become numb to stuff blowing up and whatever. So that's one of the things we constantly think about is what's, what's, what's at stake here? What do we really care about? And even in a movie like Godzilla, you know, you want to care about the family that's involved and you want to care about what's going on with the people. And that's why, you know, you have the privilege of plugging a guy like Brian Cranston in uh, to a movie like that. Cause he's, he's such an incredible actor. Um, so that, you know, there's just, and, and then the only other thing I would say is the minute that you think you have this figured out, there's absolutely no formula, right? You know, and as people review the year, there are so many times where a movie that, you know, the whisperings were, this is a disaster, this is never going to work. And it turns out it does. And there's times where, you know, folks think like, this is going to be the next big thing, but it's a very sophisticated viewing public these days. And the entertainment choices that are available to you are endless. I mean, literally endless. So I think with all the choices, you have to make sure that, um, you know, you've made something compelling enough to get people to pay attention to it. And that's getting harder and harder. Well, especially because I think people try to, uh, they try to chase the crowd a bit. And that's hard to do because I would imagine, especially in the movie making process, because you might say, you know, like if you were approaching it more from a marketing standpoint, as opposed to, you know, well, I just want to make something that I like is that by the time a movie gets made, tastes have changed. Very, <clears throat> very hard to chase zeitgeist. I mean, and on the other hand, there's things that you're not going to know that you want them until you see them. Right. Um, you know, a couple of examples for us, the 300 Zach did such an amazing job. And on the first movie, I remember people saying like, well, we know how the movie ends. I mean, the 300 die. We know that. And we heard there's this guys using some new technique or Zack Snyder, this commercial director. And it, you know, it, it was a new thing. And the same thing uh, with Inception. If you went around to focus groups and said, okay, here's the movie concept. Do you want to make it? I have a hard time believing that that movie gets made in that direction. But, you know, Chris Nolan comes and says, I have, I have an idea. Uh, generally speaking, it's a good time, a good idea to pay attention to that. Yeah. 
but that's developing a trust with someone and really identifying that person and going, I mean, because like <coughs> with Godzilla, Gareth is a fairly young director Very, yeah. and he's not, I mean like his other movie, the previous, his previous work was not a huge blockbuster movie. So what was it? What is it that you see in a guy like that? And you go, yeah, I think he can, you know, it, it's a couple things and none of it is going to be like a, a calculus equation, right? It's all, but I loved his movie monsters and when you realize that he made it for like four or $500,000 on his laptop, it's pretty insane. And I felt like he knew how to sort of create tension in those moments. He just looked like a real director to me that on a shoestring did something that was really compelling. And then when we brought him in and I got to know him, he just, there's this, um, he has humility, but yet, has that intangible thing that the great ones have uh, in terms of just command and confidence. And then lastly, when we started to put it together and you looked at some of his previs and some of his work before we finally jumped off the high dive, some of the, the things that he does do and some of the, the great ones pull off, you can't teach. I just don't, don't think you can. And uh, it's, it's incredibly gratifying, and I'll say this before the movie comes out, so that regardless, I, I love the movie, and you know he really pulled it off, and it's gratifying to kind of see somebody and you know have a lot of skepticism around it and just say nope, and that's that's the one thing is that we have the the privilege of, of doing is just saying well we believe in it so we're going to do it and if it doesn't work well then you know. That's my problem. Well, I, I was excited to see the, uh, <laughs> now that I feel like I'm part of the family, I'm, I'm very invested in this stuff emotionally because I wanted to do well. Not, I mean, not, not, not even for financial reasons, just because I just want the people that I like and work with to do well. Like I want, I want it. I feel like even though we had nothing to do, nerds had nothing to do with the movie. I sort of feel like, Oh, but we're all on the same team and I wanted to, you know, and, and so it, <laughs> When the when the trailer came out and it that I texted you that fucking video blew up like the and it I mean millions like like five or six million views overnight and it was you know it was like twenty thousand likes and just like maybe like three hundred dislikes like that that ratio on YouTube does not happen all the time um, I got excited because I I will be honest I was I was worried when I first heard you want to do Godzilla I was like oh no. No one, you can't, you can't do Godzilla. It's impossible because it was the core of it is basically campy. So how do you like? No one's been able to touch that yet in a way where you didn't just kind of like cringe. So I, I was, I was worried it was a little, a little bit of an Icarus. Like ah, I hear what he wants to do, but I don't know how this is going to be possible. No, and that's a reasonable point of view, and we heard that, and that's why we knew from at Comic Con when we did the first teaser, the Oppenheimer teaser you know, on through, we had to show people, you couldn't tell them, you couldn't say, well, look at the other movies we did. You know, nobody cares about that. It's so we, we were very cognizant of the fact that you had to show people what this, what this was. And the only other thing that I would say is if you go back and watch the Japanese, the 1954, the original Godzilla, which was a direct response to the horrors that they faced 
uh, when you know when the when the atomic bomb was used, it's it's not campy, right? It's um, and so not that we wanted to go to a dark place. We wanted everybody to have a good time and enjoy it. But you know, this Godzilla is definitely a a first cousin to that versus anything else versus then the, the derivative <laughs> the derivative works i mean yes. i love a good mothra i enjoy yeah. gamera yeah you know like from a oh this is adorable and fun it's you know <coughs> we used to watch them saturday nights they do like a creature feature yeah, you watch know, all on local them. television and you know i watch yeah, shit king Ghidra shows up yeah i mean it's that that i, I have a very the, you know I, I have a very affectionate memory of those being tied to my childhood of just getting so excited that oh, I was going to get to watch one of these. That that was my, I mean, that was it for me. I, I loved, I love Godzilla the whole, the whole trip through and the whole, you know, that Toho universe was really cool. It didn't occur to me until later, you know, with, with older eyes that, yeah, you know, it was a different tone. Were you ever, was there ever a point where you said, Oh, you know, Maybe I don't want to do this because it's you know it's too much of an emotional risk because if I screw it up I'm gonna be really I'm gonna be really <clears> upset <throat> because I, I cherished this thing as a child. You know, um, sometimes what's helped me in life is to be just ignorant enough <laughs> to you know to forge ahead. And then the other thing is, and I really mean this with all humility because it's not that we have all the answers, but the even worse for me is if someone else did it and did it not the way I'd want to see it. And then mm-hmm. that's that, right. And it's over. Um, you know, and that's happened a number of times, all, all the stuff that I've loved since I was a kid and, you know, Watchmen was extremely dark. That was my favorite graphic novel of all time. I think it's an absolute work of genius. I don't care whether it's, you know, in graphic novel form or not. And that was daunting because that's something that I read for the first time, you know, in college when I was older. So you, there's a different reference point, but uh, yeah, anytime you approach these things, it's the double-edged sword between passion and passion showing up on screen. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you don't want to, you know, you're so close to it and it's too inside and you're, you know, that you're making something that six people are going to like too. So Especially with a property like Watchmen too, because I mean Godzilla, you can sort of craft whatever the story is around it. I mean, you just have the basic yeah. concept, you know, giant lizard creature emerges from yeah. the sea and trash a city. How do they? How does? What's the story around that, and how do we tell it, and what is it? You know, you know. But Watchmen is like this is what happened. <laughs> you have to, and with <clears throat> with an adaptation, everyone has their own idea, you know, of oh I. Oh, that's cool. Or, oh, I wouldn't have done that that way. How could, you know, like, how do you. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really tricky. And that one, look, it did okay. Um, but I love, that's one of my favorite movies that we ever made. I think Zach, he made Watchmen, in my, my opinion. As a fan, when I watch that movie, um, and it's one of the few that I pull out that we've made because when you make a movie, you've seen it literally. I don't know how many hundreds of times, right? From the edit room, the early cuts and going through different iterations that it's, it's tough sometimes to go revisit that yeah. with eyes that are just saying like, Oh, okay. It's a movie. Cause you just, there's too much. Yeah, you've seen it so many times. How do you even know? Yeah. How do you even know what's, 
it's almost like repeating a word a thousand times and yeah. then going that word has no meaning anymore because I've it's yeah. just just sounds. You, yeah, and and the other issue is you can see <clears throat> excuse me everything that scenes that have been cut back and edited and so there's times there's different things I watch I'm like oh yeah this is where we took out that you know and and so it's it's a different experience than going and enjoying somebody else's movie to be sure but Watchmen is one of those that you know, I pull it out once a year at least. I like that there must have been meetings about um, let's make so Doctor Manhattan's dong has to be a little bit wider or a little bit like the CG dong in that movie. Uh huh. <laughs> so, of course, if you could manipulate anything, you would naturally. <laughs> so, are there other movies you want to talk about, Chris? <laughs> I want to know about Godzilla's dong. You know, this is the only the, the good news is in in um, in management. There's a uh, saying called "walk the factory floor." And what that means is, if you're the CEO and whatever, you need to go down and visit if it's a factory or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and the good news is, I'm getting a firsthand look at the kind of stuff that you're paid to do. What are you talking about? And it's I think it's brilliant. I don't know. I think it's brilliant. I didn't. This is, this is great. We're talking about art and cinema. That is art and cinema. That's CG. It's Hardwick. It's CG. It's Hardwick, ladies and gentlemen. It is. I I went and saw I went and saw Watchmen with um with uh, my pal Will Wheaton who and he felt like you felt that Watchmen to him was like one of the most precious That's things awesome. of his childhood and so he was very skeptical going in and we left and he was like i they i can't believe how much i loved you know it was actually the it was more fun <clears throat> watching him watch the movie now i don't know him but he's supposed to be he's not a tourist right he's a real like he's oh he's, he's a real guy like, way yeah way 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 yeah. way way yeah, i mean like will will's always ahead of the curve on everything yeah he's like at 11th level He's an eleventh. Yeah, he's like yeah, it. yeah. He's he's an he's he's an eleventh level, uh, and he has all of the. He's got he's got every kind of geek enhancement mentally that you would want. He's a genius. Yeah, well, I love him. I have I love to meet him. him. You should. Yeah, you should. I think you could like pull him. that off, right? I think I could probably arrange a meeting. Okay. I think I could probably all arrange right, a meeting. We're gonna do that. Um, it. What along the way did you you know was there one that you sort of felt like oh almost like what do you when you say you know, you, you know, you kind of learn from stuff that doesn't work and then you can move on from there. Like what are, what are some lessons you've learned specifically about that? Were there properties that you had where you're like, Oh, if we had just done this, then this, or, you know, anything along those lines. Yeah. I, I mean, first thing is you have to know when to pull the plug. It's not going to work. Cause there's times you, you don't want to let momentum carry you through to make a movie. It's, it becomes very obvious at a certain point. We've had movies that we've gone ahead and the results have, have you know, movie hasn't worked. And you can feel it. It's very rare that everything's going swimmingly and you feel like everything's dialed in and then you get a nasty surprise that, you know, it just didn't come together. It, the cracks, at least in my experience, um, the cracks show early. And there's times you just have to, I think, say, you know what, this just isn't going to work. And we've tried to become even more discerning. And we, 
we've also, the company has changed. This has always been the business plan, but at the beginning, you know, we, we co-financed movies with, with Warner brothers. Um, but it takes a while to develop your own stuff, right? That takes years. Yeah. And so you have much more control when it's a movie that you're, you know, you own it, you develop it, you've produced it, you're financing it. And so that's mostly what, almost all what we do now and have done for the past couple of years. But uh, that was also an uncomfortable seat in, in some ways to be in when you're riding shotgun and you got a lot of your own money and uh, your company's capital at risk and you're just, you know, so I, we'd much rather say, okay, if we screw this up, at least, at least we were in the driver's seat instead of the shotgun seat. Yeah. It feels, uh, I, I like that too. I like taking responsibility. I mean, I like, I, it's much, it's much better to fail on your own terms than to fail on someone else's terms that you knew like, Oh no, don't do this. <laughs> and, and you know, no. And I, and I have to say out of, you know, I think we've done released 37 movies or something at this point. But 42, the Jackie Robinson uh, story was, I mean, because now you're talking about a real person, a cultural icon, and somebody that uh, I would argue was one of the most important figures, you know, in uh, the last, this this uh, past century. And um, because Rachel Robinson, his, his, um, his wife, you know, she was involved and amazing and everything. But I'll tell you what, going to that first screening to show Rachel, uh, show Mrs. Robinson the movie was, I don't get nervous often, but I was nervous. Well, yeah, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of personal, of uh, personal things oh. at stake for you. I mean, not even, not even the, how's this movie going to do, but you know, I don't want to let down oh. the wife of <clears throat> one of my heroes. Yeah. You guys went through all this and were treated in this manner. And now here's us screwing it up on, on screen. And, uh, one of the most gratifying moments of this whole journey for me is when, um, you know, and, and when we screened it for her in New York, you know, I was going to go sit in the back and she goes, Oh no, you sit right here. So I sat next to her and when it was over, uh, you know, she stood up and she hugged me and she got emotional and just said, I love it. And I was like, I'm good. Wherever this heads from here, I'm good. So it was, you know, it was an amazing experience, especially because it wasn't, you know, a superhero movie or, or even the town or something like that. It was, um, you know, it was Jackie Robinson. Well, that's why it's interesting to watch all of the, I mean, because you're sort I mean, I know that legendary has almost 300 employees, but the soul of it is you. I mean, it's, it's, it's what you, because ultimately, you know, when you start looking at all the movies that you guys make, they're all things that are very telling about what you, what your personality is. You know, it's like you love, you know, Jackie Robinson is one of your heroes. So you make 42, you love Godzilla. So you're trying to make this, you, you know, you're, you're a dark Knight fan. So you make, you know, you start making bat, you make Batman movies. <clears throat> so it, there's no, I mean, you know, when you sort of look at, well, what's the unifying theme of the brand of legendary as a brand? It's like, well, it's, it's Thomas because it's the, the, these are all the things that he, you know, all the things that inspired him when he was young that he now on a grand scale has this sort of playground to go through and start making all of it. Yeah. Well, look, for, first of all, and I really mean this, it's a, if you ever get to the place where you're arrogant enough to think like it's all you or anything. It's, 
I, I feel like we do make stuff I want to see because you can't have 50 points of view on stuff like that or you, you'll never get anywhere. Um, you know, we have a guy, John Jashney, who runs um, development and creative for us is phenomenal. And he's, he's really nice too. He's, he's a great guy. And he has, what I love is he has this squad of um, his young development executives that not only do they bleed legendary, but they're smart and they don't, all the Hollywood crap, like they don't, I wouldn't trade these folks, um, you know, for anybody. He has, he has two Alexes, Alex Garcia and Headland, and then um, Sophie Sikora and, and Jillian Scher, and they they just live this stuff. And um, so that makes it a heck of a lot easier to, to pull off. But in terms of just here are the mountains we're going to try to climb, um, you know, I've always said, like, someday I'll go to Comic-Con on a walker and, and, you know, get excited about some movie. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? And I'm, I'm sure, you know, that'll happen. But in the meantime, we'll keep trying to get away with stuff. Well, I, I mean, you know, obviously I'm biased. I'm sure people are like, well, what else are you going to say to the guy that you work for? But <coughs> ultimately, everyone at Legendary is, is really nice. Like, and, and I feel like in, in sort of the climate of the rest of the entertainment business, you guys could be dicks if you wanted to. You could be dicks if you wanted to, because it's such a I mean, like you could be the, the company is at a place where no one could really challenge that and just be like, yeah, you know, they're a little difficult, but what are, what are we yeah. going to do? And everyone like all, especially like all the, you know, between uh, you and Jashney and and uh, and Martin Wilhite and Bruce Rosenblum and Marlon and uh, and all these people, they're just nice guys that that I don't ever feel intimidated by or and I don't feel like they're being nice to me just because. I run my own thing. I feel like they're just nice to people. Well, look, here, here's the thing. Not that there aren't plenty of nice people in this business, but one of the things that I find is that it's so nerve wracking and I've never worked, you know, at one of the studios or anything. And that's a, that's a big deal. When the studios are putting out 20, 22 movies a year, that's hard. I mean, we do four to six movies a year. And that's hard, but no, nowhere near what the pressure that they're under. And I think people get worn down by this business. It's um, the failures are incredibly public, right? <laughs> and um, you know, and it's it's and there's a lot of luck involved. And so the only thing that we've tried to remind ourselves constantly: this is an absolute privilege to do what we do, right? It. So when people ask me, are there hard days? A hundred percent. But when I go home at night and I'm like, what did I do? Well, we sat and worked on the choreography of Godzilla and the monster fight in the third act. Are you kidding me? That's what I got to do today. Or I got to argue the merits of what the neural load would be in connection um, in Gypsy Danger with Guillermo del Toro for Pac Rim that's pretty cool. Like that's a pretty cool way to spend your day. So we just, first of all, we, we hopefully are good enough gatekeepers that we only want people that are excited about the business and not that like worn down, like this sucks. I mean, it's, that's a, that's tough. So, and then it's just a testament to the, to the people that we've brought in and also karma and not being nice has a way of being circular, I think. So how do you, um, 
because it is such a business of, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people work from a place of fear, which is a very not a good place to work from. Right. And when you when you're working from fear, you make bad choices, you make rash decisions, you chase trends, you because you don't want to get fired. Like there's a difference between I want to go to work and make something because I'm passionate about this thing, or I'm going to go to work and I hope I don't get fired. But those are two very distinct <clears throat> um, mentalities. And so, how do you foster the the positive one? Well, one of the things, it's not like you can't get fired at Legendary, but if you're doing exactly what we set out to do, you know, and I have a big saying, you point the thumb, not the finger. And, you know, it, it's got to be, but, but to be fair, whether it's at the agencies, or the studios or whatever, it has got to be incredibly daunting and scary. And it's easy to say, don't come from a place of fear. But if you think about some of these folks that started literally, whether it's in the William Morris, uh, uh, the proverbial uh, mail, the mail room, or started out as an assistant in one of the studios and worked their way all the way up, the chances to get there, you know, it's incredibly hard. And then for somebody to say, look, you can have this chair, you can have this job. But only so long as it goes well, because we will yank all of this away <laughs> the second from you. it goes bad. <clears throat> so, you know, so I don't and, and the fact that we're our own thing, you know, is, is helpful. So there's a little less of that. But at the end of the day, that's just no, at least for me, that's no way to live your life. It's like you make your choices and, you know, you decide how to spend your time. And, uh, you know, but it's that's that's a tough way, I think, to, to work. Well, the, running a business on a massive scale, that's essentially a business that's, but it's built on the back of creative endeavors, which has where, where you have creative personality types. I mean, it's, I, I would imagine it's, it can be challenging some days where it's like, well, you know, this director has this idea, but this actor doesn't want to come out of their trailer because they're upset about this thing. And, but we're going to run behind and it's like, <clears throat> how do you? You know, it, it's ultimately a business of trying to keep people at least moving in somewhat in the same direction. No question about it. And that's why, to me, the director, the story, you know, if you have a bad script, <laughs> how do you think the story is going to end? Right. Um, and then just having everybody on the same page so that when you start this journey, right, you're going to run film through a camera or a television show or whatever it is. That everybody says yes, this is what we're doing. If you do, that's why if you don't have complete clarity of vision, it, it's really tough to make this thing come out on the other side and work. But ultimately, you're in the human being business. And the other issue is when you're in the position where you're making movies like we make, we don't make movies with people that don't have the resume for the most part. Right. So when you're sitting there you know, having a passionate debate and discussion with said director, you know, this director may have done three of your favorite movies. And so that that's also where it gets tricky and where we constantly, but I think the, the one thing that the reason that we work with some of these amazing directors and, and actors and writers over and over and over again is at least a, a number of them have said to me, look, when I work at your shop, I never feel like there's any other agenda but the movie, right? It's like I may disagree with you that this this scene doesn't work or does work, 
but I never feel the fingerprints of somebody's trying to get a promotion and is angling. So you can at least have really honest conversation and dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, without that, I don't know how this works. There are things that I've learned that I didn't know before. I mean, I don't really understand the film business at all. It's a, it's a strange, crazy whole new business that mm-hmm. is somewhat related to what I do, but I know is a completely set, different set of politics, different set of steps, different set of everything. Cause I think most people kind of have this, you know, we're in kind of a DIY niche culture now. So you go, Oh, well, why don't you just, uh, why don't you just make like a uh, 10, $1 million movies. And then, you know, like, and you go, but what I'm starting to learn is, well, yeah, but then you still have to market those films. And so they don't end up being a, a million dollar movie. It ends up being like a $30 million movie. And then you're in this kind of mid budget range where it's very difficult to make that money back. So, which is why, you know, from what I understand, you either make really low budget movies or giant movies from the business standpoint. You know, I think you can have general guideposts and rules. Um, but I also think there are exceptions to those rules. You know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's very tough. Had we followed some of the quote, never make a movie in this range or whatever, we never would have made Hangover. We never would have made 300, right? And th- there are other examples. <clears throat> so I try not to get too hung up on like these are the movie rules of economics. You have to be responsible. And, and I think the rules have changed dramatically, as I referenced before, even in the last 10 years. 60, 65% of our box office on our movies is international versus domestic. And so you have to think about that. And you have to think about the way things have shifted downstream in terms of people buying DVDs versus, you know, uh, Netflix or iTunes or renting them. I mean, it's just, that's a different paradigm. Um, The marketing is very, very expensive. And sometimes people don't understand what that does to the business model. And, uh, and then lastly, I, I am just think there are so many different things every day that clamor for your attention. Yeah. You know, if you think about this, this happens a lot in my own household, we're going to watch a movie like, all right, we're going to watch a movie at nine o'clock and everybody wants to do that. Right. Best intentions. But you're like, all right, I'm going to check my email real quick. So you get an email and Chris Hardwick sends me this hilarious YouTube video. I was like, check this out. You check it out and you go there and there's two other videos on the side. <laughs> the rabbit hole. <clears throat> yeah. And then and then you look up and somebody else is into you checking on the internet. And by the time you look up, it's, it's, it's 20 to 10. I'm not less interested in that movie. It's not like, oh, I saw the trailer. Now I don't want to see it. There are things that are available to you today that erode your time that just that just happens. So there's a huge difference, I think, now in saying to somebody like, hey, you want to see that movie? And they're like, yeah. What they're really saying is at some point. Right. You know, versus I'll catch it. <laughs> I just saw the trailer and I will be there opening. Like I am compelled to do this. And there's a there's a huge difference. And that's our job. Because if you if you can't ever get to that example, then it's hard to start the car. To and a lot of that doesn't even really have to do with the movie, but with the marketing of the movie, like how, just, you can tell, you know, you sort of have this internal gauge where 
you know, you see a billboard go up and it's, you know, and you've never seen it before and the movie's opening in like two weeks and you're like, oh, yeah. That the obligatory. I didn't go too well. They're trying to bury it versus, <clears throat> you know, oh, they showed footage like a year in advance and everyone's like building excitement. How do you, you know, how do you market it? How do you give people the sense of what that thing is and make them want to, you know, I guess you can't really make anyone do anything, but I mean like. How do you get people excited about that thing and convey it, you know, well before it actually even hits the hits the ground? Yeah, that that's important. Um, you know, it's one of the things I also believe in a social media age that you can engage one on one with people in ways that you never could before. So, you know, we have a, a group, social media and analytics group that that's what we do. And candidly, we don't want to try to sell a movie or a TV show or Nerdist or anything, we don't want to sell that to people who don't want to be sold to. I'd rather sure. not waste the time or energy or theirs. It's about engaging people who, if they knew about it, they'd be excited about it and being more efficient in, in that pursuit. So that's something that, you know, we're really excited about. But, uh, and then the other thing is just the sheer number of tentpole films, you know, because when I, when, when I started Legendary, Part of, you know, the thesis was that this is a, getting to be a global business. And if you could make things that appeal to global audiences, these big movies that are escapist and capture people's imagination. And back then, <clears throat> a lot of this, the studios felt like, no, nah, I'd rather pay said star 20 million bucks and make a $40 million comedy. And that's the safest place to be. You're crazy with these $150 million movies. Now everybody's shifted to that and it's, you just get wave after wave of these big movies. And that's the other thing that makes it more challenging. Is there too much, uh, are, are, are we becoming more of a global business now in terms of perception or is it still too, cause I feel like America is so America centric. They focus so much on domestic. So they might go, well, you know, Pacific Rim made a couple hundred million dollars and they go, yeah, but worldwide it also made this much too. Yeah. Yeah. So why do they, why do we, why does why is it just because it have, doesn't have anything to do with America? Where we go like, well, it's not. They don't really they don't really count that for some reason. Well, look, I mean, from a reporting standpoint, certainly people get fixated just on the domestic number. Yeah, and I've learned like, what, there's nothing you can do about that, right? I mean, that's just you know, people don't realize like, well, yeah, but it, the dollars are count just the same overseas and <laughs> that's still money right yeah, people as do far as money know, on other countries we are sophisticated enough to you know translate the currency and get it back in dollars but uh you know and and i also just think that um it's the, the studio certainly not just us everybody pays attention international that's where all the growth is in china i mean you know we we did i think we're one of the biggest films of all time in China is Pacific Rim did like $114 million there. And you know, the Chinese, the audience goers and, and sort of, uh, not only are they a lot of people, but they, you know, they like going to the movies. So you got to pay attention to that. Do you still enjoy, has any of this process taken any of the excitement or enjoyment you way you you had of watching movies because you, you know, so much of the, you know so much of the process? You know, no. Um, to me, it actually continually reinvigorates me. And I, I watched, you know, like I, I watched uh, Captain America um, this weekend and I loved it. It was great. It was great. 
and some friends, you know, we, we went and, and it was, uh, I really enjoyed it. And, um, and I think it also kind of gives you something to shoot for, you know, and it, it, and then what I always do also is go backwards and continue to visit my old friends, right? <laughs> the, the old movies that, uh, whether it's stuff, you know, in the most recent past that you love or, you know, my, my, uh, group from the eighties, whether it's Poltergeist, the Goonies, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, what are some more of your favorites? Um, you know, from, from back then, um, those are, those are some of the touchstones jaws to me, you know, is a perfect movie. I just, I think that's, you know, close encounters was, it sounds like obviously the star Wars movies. And then as we got, um, as we got, uh, into the next realm, I love Peter Jackson's the Lord of the Rings. I thought it was phenomenal what he translated. I'm a big fan of that. Obviously the, the matrix was, was pretty awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'll go back in and see, uh, almost famous was another movie Cameron Crowe did that I thought was just had a lot of heart. And, um, so I, I'll try to mix it up, see the new stuff, but also go back and make sure you don't lose that vocabulary. <laughs> when you were watching the, when you watched the nineties Batman films, were you like, God damn it, I'm going to fix that. <laughs> I'm going to fix that someday. Or were you not even thinking about it? No, like no. I was thinking the first time I ever met Chris Nolan and he's like, here's, you know, here's what we're going to do. I thought, okay, first of all, this guy gets not just Batman that some people have grown up with and said like, Oh cool. I've got the pajamas or right. I remember pow, but the dark night, like what that really meant. And, uh, so then I was kind of like, okay, Chris, that's awesome. Go do your thing. And there's kind of, but a legendary movie, no matter what, what the genre is, there's a certain feeling or there's a certain, I don't know how to describe it, but there's a certain tone when, when you see that Celtic symbol where you go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This makes sense. I don't know. There's a certain filter over it that, that is, that seems to be consistent no matter if it's a, if it's a comedy or a biopic or a, or a, a sci-fi or like whatever it is. And what is that? You, you know, um, I, I'm embarrassed to say this and I certainly don't want to name drop, but you know, Robert Zemeckis is one of the greatest directors of all time. Um, and something that I'm friendly with, and certainly Back to the Future was another one of those touchdowns. Sure. Genius. Um, you know, he came in and we were meeting recently, and there's one hallway that had the obligatory posters. And he kind of said that to me, and I thought, okay, well, I can quit now. <laughs> Robert Zemeckis uh, felt that, just that there's a there's a through line or something. And, I, I mean, look, phrases are phrases. The thing that we say all the time is commercial but elevated. And again, we're not going to hit that every time, but if you're going to take all these talented people and you're going to put something in front up on a screen and ask people to take their time to see it, we just want to obsess over it being good. And so, you know, and it's, it's about also backing people (laughs) that are incredibly talented. And that's, that's the privilege that I get to, you know, stand next to these folks. And, uh, is that what you're most passionate about now? I mean, what would you say you're most passionate about these days? Um, I, I think just the awe that I have. I mean, even with, with Godzilla, 
there, there was a moment where we locked in the roar and we obsessed. I, I drove Eric, our sound guy, nuts. He, he's a true genius <clears throat> because it had to be right. And I wanted it to hit me right. And um, just sitting at the soundboard at the time that it was like, no, that's it. And then when we locked the picture and I kind of looked over at Gareth and I was like, okay, we made a Godzilla move. Like it, it's surreal to me. So anything that we can take on that um, gets me really excited and engaged with these incredible directors. Uh, I visited the, the set again recently of Warcraft with Duncan Jones, who's another incredible talent. And you just walk around these, the forest that they put together and you're like, okay. So it's, it's, um, you know, it is, it can be, it's not 24 seven, but it is the magic business. And that's the thing I'm most passionate about is to take, to be around these incredibly gifted people and have legendary be able to say, okay, let's, let's throw that party and, and be around it is just, you know, it's, it, I'm incredibly fortunate. So obviously, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, some of the finance people at legendary might disagree, but no matter how Godzilla does, do you feel like I'm no matter what happens, I'm happy with what we did. Cause you obviously, you can't predict what people are going to do. <clears throat> you can't. And the answer is absolutely. I, I love the movie that, um, that we made and that Gareth made and that's all you can do. I mean, you know, I have some friends in the business that'll go on to the websites and read the talkbacks and the chats and everything. And they just get incredibly depressed because they're like, Oh my God, I put three years of my life in this. And if they knew how much I cared and all they say is it sucks and whatever. And I'm like, then don't read it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's people have the right to, you know, opine on it. You know, my other, um, I'm also in the sports business, and if you buy the ticket, you can boo. I mean, that's that's what it is. Um, but, you, you know, you don't want to get dissuaded from what you're doing. And you also have to have the understanding that most of the folks that, you know, are on those boards and everything, that if they got dropped into the situation for a couple of weeks, then you have context. And you're kind of like, okay this is hard. Like I thought I had this short up and then yeah. something cropped up over here and it's just, um, but it's, it's a very high class problem, so to speak. And, uh, I love what I do. Well, um, I think, are we at an hour, Katie? Yeah. Oh my God. But that was an hour 10. Well, that's what happens when you, uh, start talking. But, um, I, um, hopefully this, this, uh, you'll be able to edit this out. No, this is all going to stay in. Yeah. I'm not going to make it. Well, technically, you can force me to edit it out, but I don't think <laughs> I, mean, well, I just want to say on the record, one of the first things we bought Nerdist that I said to Chris was, listen, you have to keep your editorial voice. Yeah. And if you open – now, Nerdist is more of a celebration of pop culture. Mm -hmm. You guys generally don't get into uh, this movie sucked or this TV. That's no. not really the tone of it. But the very clear mandate was if you – don't like something we make, you should say it. Yeah. And, and because that for folks that are all the Nerdist fans out there, we're Nerdist fans as well. That's why we bought the company and we have nothing to do with the editorial voice 
And we don't want to. That's you don't you don't you don't buy something and say this is awesome. Let's change it. No, because I didn't really I didn't when we sold when we sold Nerdist to you. I didn't really want to sell Nerdist to anyone at the time because I felt like we were just starting to figure out what what the voice was, and some companies were sniffing around. And you know, I was like, God, you know, these some of these other companies are just going to make us part of. We're shiny right now. They're going to make us part of their weird corporate structure and then we're never going to be able to do what we want. And and the only, the only reason that I agreed to it is because I had that meeting with you and you said, you said that, and we've had complete autonomy to do and make whatever we want. No, no one on your team has ever said, well, you know, don't do this or it'd be really great if you didn't, you know, you, you guys have really just been a support structure for us. So we're sort of like an exoskeleton and we're, we're starting to get into some really interesting territory now because Nerdist is actually starting it now I feel like we've gotten to the point where now it's actually starting to become a thing where it's like you know things are happening that I'm not that I didn't know happened like I'll watch a commercial for a movie and they'll go you know I couldn't I my eyes were glued to the screen you know Dan Casey Nerdist and I'm like holy shit like that to me trips me out that 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 it's kind of it's starting it's kind of taken on a life of its own well in conclusion Remember the Will Wheaton thing, though. You're yeah, I will. I promise. I yeah, no, sure. I said I would. I will. Right. I, I just I don't want to get. You're not. I promise you. Right. I, I could. I'll. If, I'll just call him now and be like, "You have to get." Fair enough. Let's right. do it. Let's call. <laughs> but thank you, thank you very much. I really, I appreciate it, and and um, thanks for being confident in what we do. It really means it means a lot. Cool. All Excellent. right. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Roar! Enjoy your burrito roar. Roar! Excellent. I have no idea how that went. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.